If you would join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 23. Chapter 23 describes a group of relationships where sexual relations are absolutely forbidden, even within marriage. So it prohibits marriages between certain individuals and the children of Israel. And specifically, it talks about men marrying into the daughters of Israel from outside or even some cases from within. So with that in mind, let's start with number one. Actually, I think we talked last week about the last verse of chapter 22, didn't we? A man shall not take his father's wife nor uncover his father's bed. And we looked at how 1 Corinthians chapter 5 was an individual in the congregation violating that commandment. And did Paul say, well, that's okay, that's an Old Testament rule? Or did Paul say, get him out of the congregation, he's not saved? And of course, when they excluded him from the congregation, he came to realize that you can't be a true believer and walk in that kind of sin. He repented, and in 2 Corinthians, he's welcomed back into the congregation now that he's in right standing with the Lord. So, in a Jewish published Bible, verse 30 of chapter 22 is verse 1 of chapter 23. So, if you're following along in a Jewish published Bible, and our verses are off by 1, you'll know that's why. Okay. So verse 1 says, He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, because one in that condition is unable to bear children. So God does not want an outsider marrying into the daughters of Israel unable to produce children within the children of Israel. Would that pertain also to an Israelite? Yes, that would also pertain to an Israelite. If you're not able to have children, well, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Verse 2, one of illegitimate birth. That does not have the same meaning in Hebrew as it does in English. The Hebrew word is a mamzer. Mamzer. So it says, one of illegitimate birth, a mamzer, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. A mamzer is one who is born of a man and woman whose marriage could never be valid. So they may have gotten married, quote unquote, but the marriage is forbidden by God, which is why it would never be valid. For example, incest, a man marries his daughter. Well, who knows in this crazy world today, but in God's eyes, that can never, ever be a valid marriage. So a child born of a marriage like that is a mom's heir. Another example is a child born of adultery. That adulterous relationship can never be a valid marriage in God's eyes. So that child is excluded from marrying into the daughters of Israel. Aren't these just wonderful topics? But, carrying on. Number three. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why in the world are Ammonites and Moabites forbidden from marrying into Israel? 
What did they do? Well, the scriptures tell us that Ammon refused even to give bread and water to the children of Israel as they traveled through the land. And Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel. So for that reason, yes, ma'am? Ruth is a Moabite. She's more than 10 generations, and we're going to look at her in a minute. Yeah. Notice he said, unto the 10th generation, not forever. The forever is anyone to the 10th generation can't enter forever. Uh huh. So let's go look at Ruth, the Moabitess. Where would we find Ruth? In which book? Ruth. That's right. That was a trick question. So let's go look at Ruth chapter 1. How many of you love the book of Ruth? If you've never heard the teaching, The Mystery of the Garen by Jonathan Kahn, you really need to hear that one. That's just an outstanding teaching. The, the Mystery of the Garen, G-O-R-E-N. What's a Garen? It's the threshing floor. The Book of Ruth actually happened. It's a real story, but it's also very prophetic. And it's about the Gentile believers being grafted into Israel. So let's look at it. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Let me give people a chance to find it. At which festival do you read the book of Ruth? Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Yep. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Literally in Hebrew it says when the judges judged, but the English translator said, oh, that sounds redundant. That there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The sages of old say it's because he was a wealthy man, one of the wealthiest in Israel. He had plenty of grain, and he was tired of people asking him for it. So for selfish reasons, he goes to Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. What does Elimelech mean? My God is king. The name of his wife was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion, which means what? Sickly and wasting away. Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. Orpah means stiff-necked. Name of the other, Ruth. Ruth means friend. So the two daughters-in-law, their names picture their attitudes toward the Jewish people. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Machlon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. What does the name Bethlehem mean? House of bread. The famine's over. Therefore, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The daughters-in-laws were from where? 
Moab. Do they worship the Lord God in Moab? No, they worship pagan gods. So go return to your mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Lord, grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And he said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? That's a reference to leveret marriage, which will come up today in our studies. Turn back, my daughters. Go! For I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then he lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. To her people and what? And to her gods. She has turned away from the true and living God to go back to worship idols. The sages tell us her grandson is Goliath. As Ruth's grandson is David. Hmm. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. I mean, Ruth says, I ain't going. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. In a picture, Naomi represents Israel and Ruth represents the believing Gentiles that get grafted in. Orpah represents the Gentiles who almost got grafted in but then turned away. Okay. But she's more than ten generations down. Back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 23. Verse 4 explains why. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. Why would the Ammonites and the Moabites Greet the children of Israel with bread and water and treat them kindly. It was custom of the day, but they're related. they're related. Ammon and Moab are the sons of Lot. And Abraham and Lot were so very close, so very tight. They're family. And it was Abraham who told Lot, you choose which portion of the country you want. And Lot chose the nice plush valleys. And Abraham stayed up in the mountains where making a living's a little harder. But And now the descendants of Lot want to punish the descendants of Abraham. So because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Baor from Bethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. 
to curse you. They're relatives. Let's look at Numbers chapter 22. See how that happened. It's a long reading, but it's very insightful and shows why God says they can't enter your congregation for ten generations. Verse 1, Numbers 22, 1. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Where did Moses die? Out Mount, uh, Mount Nebo, just across the river from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Do you have any idea how small the world's population was back then? If you look at the chart up here, when did the world first hit a billion people? Not all that long ago. So if Israel, with the mixed multitude, came out of Egypt about three million strong, that was a huge, huge population. And Moab, they're kind of small. Verse 6, therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they're too mighty for me. Perhaps I should be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. What's that? Money, Money to pay Balaam. They're going to pay Balaam to curse the children of Israel. It says, and he came to Balaam and spoke to him with the words of Balak. And he said to him, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. In other words, he says, I've got to go ask the Lord if I can take your gold. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me saying, look. A people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. Who's Balaam talking to? God. Who brought the people to where they are? God. Okay. So he, he's not thinking quite right yet. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. They shall not curse the people, for they, meaning the children of Israel, are blessed. Does God change his mind? No. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the prince of, princes of Balak, 
Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. But he says it with a tear. Because when they go back to their land, what are they taking with them? The gold. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak sent more princes, more numerous and more honorable than they. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. Put that in modern English. Pay a lot. And I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. He says you can name your own price tag. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, wink, wink, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight, that I may know what the Lord will say to me. In other words, give me one more chance to persuade him, because he's offering a lot. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princess of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. Why would God's anger be aroused? Because he went. God said go. And Linda's about to say the motive that he has for going. Yeah, God didn't say you have to go. He says you can. Yeah. <laughs> Did God say you can go get the gold? No, but that's what's in Balaam's heart. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. <laughs> Is the Lord just a little unhappy? And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. He should have been thanking the donkey, but instead he strikes her. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with the wall on this side and the wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. You think that hurt? Yeah, that hurt. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And rather than going, A donkey speaks, he engages her in conversation. And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you've abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in a way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. 
And the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your way is perverse before me. Does the Lord think for a minute Balaam's purpose was to be obedient to the Lord? No, it's that gold and silver. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. So what was Balaam, inten Balaam intending to speak before this? Whatever, whatever needed. Whatever needed to be said to get that gold, he was going to curse Israel. Hmm. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border at the Arnon, which is a river that runs down into the Jordan River, the boundary of the territory. Then Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you, calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Meaning, do you think I can't pay enough? And Balaam said to Balaam, look, I have come to you. Now have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. What do you think Balaam's probably thinking at this point? And I better speak just exactly as I'm told, right? I've seen the angel Lord. I've seen that big old sword. Um, I don't want to take him on. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriot, who soaked. Then Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. Was he offering those to the Lord God? You can bet not. So it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. So Balaam is partaking of food offered to idols. Balaam is going up to high places, which are pagan places of worship. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did just as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Then Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. Whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam. And he said to him, I have prepared the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. What, Balaam thinks God didn't know? Why do you think he's pleading with God? Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he returned to him and there he was standing by his burnt offering, he and all the princes of Moab. He took up his oracle and said, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me from Aram. Where's Aram? Syria. Syria. Where did Abraham first settle? 
at Padanaram. From the mountains of the east, come, come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob, or number one-fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my end be like his. You think Balak's impressed? Yes. <laughs> then Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and look, you have blessed them bountifully. So he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak what the Lord has put in my mouth? Then Balak said to him, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only the outer part of them and shall not see them all. Curse them for me from there. So he brought him to the top of Sophim, to the top of Pisgah, and that's where Moses will later die. And built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And he said to Balak, Stand here by your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. Why is he doing these seven burnt offerings? He's trying to get the Lord to change his mind because he still wants that gold. Then the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak and thus you shall speak. So he came to him and there he was, standing by his burnt offering and the princes of Moab were with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Then he took up his oracle and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent, meaning to change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob. Here's where the wheels start to turn. Nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He has strengthened. He has strength like a wild ox. There is no sorcery or enchantment against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. And now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, oh, what has God done? That's enough in this chapter to know what? God isn't going to change his mind, but Balaam brought up some other point. It's because God has not observed iniquity in Jacob. This is where Balaam plots the plan that comes forth in chapter 25. Let's look at the last verse of chapter 24 of Numbers, that's verse 25. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. But Balaam has now told Balak how to get God to curse the children of Israel. Verse 1, now Israel remained in Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Tells us later that this was Balaam's idea that he pitched to Balak. You want God to curse the children of Israel? You've got to have them go off the path of righteousness and into iniquity. 
And here come the, what shall we say, very friendly women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So they lead Israel into sexual immorality and food sacrifice to idols. And what does God do? Sends out a plague. He curses the children of Israel who have participated in the sin. Now turn up to the book of Revelation as we did last night. Twice in Revelation chapter 2, God refers back to this incident at Baal of Peor. <clears throat> Revelation makes clear what I just told you about, whose idea it was to send these very friendly women with their sacrifices. And participating in the sacrifice by eating the food sacrificed to idols was the entry fee to the prostitutes. Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So whose plan was it that got carried out at Baal Peor in Numbers chapter 25? It was Balaam's. It was Balaam's who met the Lord on the road with the flaming sword, who still coveted that gold and silver so much that despite God telling him twice that what I have blessed you shall not curse, he devised a way to get God's judgment to fall. It repeats that in verse 20 of chapter 2 of Revelation. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Back to Deuteronomy. Yeah, Balaam gets killed by the sword. He does, yeah. Do you think for a minute that God didn't see what Balaam did? Oh, he saw. And Balaam met his end. You have to go a little farther in Numbers to read that. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23. God has just explained why the children of Moab and Ammon are not allowed to come into the congregation of Israel until ten generations have passed to get past the sin of Balaam and Balak. Let's see. We'll pick up in verse 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. How did that curse, that judgment that came from God in Numbers 25 end? When Phineas, the son of... Uh -huh. So a descendant of Aaron, of the priesthood, of the Levites. What did he do? He took a javelin and a... Yeah. Stuck it to him. That's, that's a good way to put it. Okay. Yes. It was the guy that presented the lady and said, do you want to worship some desert god or play with the prostitutes? And Phineas ran them both through and God stopped the plague. Hmm. 
There are many, many theologians out there today saying it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Having read Revelation, how would you respond? No way, Jose. Ain't doing it. Okay. So back to verse 6. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Where's Ammon and Moab today? That's Jordan. Didn't Israel make their first peace, peace treaty among the Arab nations with Jordan? Yeah. And gave them the Temple Mount. Is that in accordance with what God says here? Nope. Now, verse 7. Let's turn our attention to Edom. Edom is today the southern portion of Jordan. It's where Petra is. It says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. How in the world is an Edomite the brother to Israel? Uh, Edom is another name for Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Let's go to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram. Of where? Padan Aram. That's where Abraham first settled when he came out of the Ur of the Chaldees. That's where Balaam was from. The sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Which was the older? Esau. The younger? Jacob. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. What does Esau mean? Hairy. 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 Edom means red. The hair is red, so that's why he's nicknamed Red. Edom. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when he bore them. Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy 23, verse 7. We've only read half of it. So when it says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother, that's talking literal. Jacob and Esau were brothers. They're supposed to love each other. Did they love each other? They did not love each other, but they should have. It says, you shall not abhor an Egyptian, because you were an alien in his land. When was Israel an alien in Egypt? Oh, oh, the captivity. That's right. 
Isaiah chapter 19. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19, verses 18 to 25. Yes, Egypt did enslave Israel. But when Israel went out of Egypt, what did the Egyptians give them? Gold, silver, animals, clothes, garments, all kinds of wealth. And said, get, go, yeah. Verse 18, it says, in that day, what day? Day of the Lord. Five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. Oh, do they mean Greek? No, Hebrew, and swear by the Lord of hosts. In other words, Egypt's going to get saved one of these days. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, what day? Day of the Lord. There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. The pillar at the border indicates the God whom the nation serves. So Egypt will come to serve the true and living God. They will get saved by faith. Verse 20, it says, And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. And he will send them a savior and a mighty one. And he will deliver them. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. What should we find in those verses that's not there? And Moab and Ammon were just like Assyria and Egypt, worshiping the Lord our God. But do you see that? No. So back in Deuteronomy, what's that, Daniel? They're going to be an ash heap. That's right. So back in Deuteronomy, God says, don't hate the Edomite. He's your brother. Don't hate the Egyptian. I know that they have done bad things to you, but they're going to become my people one day. Is the Coptic Christian community in Egypt kind of fulfilling the scripture? Not yet. But they, there are a lot of Coptic. There are. But God always shows a foreshadowing of what's to come. So yes, ma'am. I, I read, I, don't, I haven't really researched this, but I read that during uh, Manasseh's time, there was a remnant of true believers from Israel that went over to Egypt and took refuge there and actually built a temple, a sort of model of the temple. And, and they even had the ark. They took the ark with them so it wouldn't be defiled in the temple that Manasseh had horribly defiled. And, um, and so th they thought this was a little bit of a you know, precursor of, of this 
And it could well be. Who traveled with Paul? Luke. Luke was a Greek-speaking Jew from Egypt. So yes, there could be a lot of truth in what you just said. Yeah, there was, you know, an area of teaching and both. Yeah, there's a couple different stories about how the Ark of the Covenant got into Ethiopia. But I believe that it was in Ethiopia, in Axum, just as the Ethiopians say. When the Ethiopian Jews came back to Israel in the early 1990s, the last airplane that came back in Operation Exodus or Moses, they were the two different sets of flights. The last plane that came back anyway was the 747 with one wooden crate and heavily armed guards. That's all that was on the plane. And according to the rabbi of the Temple Mount, who I talked to in 92, they took the ark when it landed and took it under the Temple Mount, put it in a tunnel and bricked it over in the middle of the night. And that's when they got serious then about rebuilding the temple. True or not, we'll find out one day. But at any rate, do you see why in chapter 23 there's a difference between an Ammonite and a Moabite? the people who will never come to the Lord, and those of Edom and Egypt who will. Yes? Are there still objects in the ark? Are there still objects in the ark? I'm not going to look into it to see, but according to the scripture, yes, there are. According to the scripture in the book of Hebrews, what's there? The tablets? A pot of manna? The staff of Aaron. Tell me about that rod of Aaron. Right. Exactly right. When the other tribe said, how do we know Levites supposed to be the leaders? God had the head of each tribe put a rod into a pile. And when God chose the rod of Aaron... The word for rod is mated, just like tribe. So the rod represented the tribe. Same word. And how did God show his choice? The dead stick blossomed and produced fruit. How many of you would expect a two before at home to overnight produce fruit? Yeah. Probably not going to happen, huh? Yeah, that's about it. So, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Yes, sir. So, for talking about the Edomites, you're saying that they're going to eventually come to faith. Right. The Edomites. Down where Petra is. In the book of Obadiah, it says that Esau will be decimated and not remembered forever. So, will it be just like a remnant of the Edomites or It's going to be a remnant, just a remnant. Yeah. If you remember in Isaiah 63, Edom's in big trouble with the Lord because of their treatment. But it's not all. It's, there's a remnant. What did God make Isaiah name one of his sons? A remnant shall return. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Deuteronomy chapter 23, we're up to verse 8. The children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So Edom and Egypt could not marry into Israel until three generations had passed. 
And that was sufficient to the Lord to say, they can marry in now. So three generations from this time? Three generations from the time that Israel came into the land. And remember, in this time, they're about to come into the land. So it would be the same thing. Okay. Verse 9. Oh. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. That's not what the Hebrew says. It says, then keep yourself from every bad or evil thing. Wicked is a step farther down the ladder. So wicked are th those things that are truly abominations to the Lord. And God says, don't even do those that are less evil than that. Keep yourself from every bad or evil thing. Why? Because if God is going to be among the army of Israel in the camps, he will not dwell amongst the uncleanness. So you will keep the camp righteous and godly, or God will depart. And then how does war go if God is not with you? Not well. Yeah, it didn't take a huge army to overthrow them, did it? No. In fact, from verse 9 on, we're going to talk about when the armies of Israel have to go to battle and they want God to be in the camp with them. So it starts at verse 9. Keep yourself from every bad or evil thing. Which, of course, would include the wicked things, but doesn't even have to rise to the level of rasha. Bad or evil is ra. Wicked is rasha. Verse 10, if there is any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. For example, let's go to Leviticus chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15, verses 16 and 18. says, if any man has an emission of semen, then he shall wash all his body in water and be unclean until evening. And verse 18 says, also when a woman lies with a man, there's an emission of semen, they shall bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Even these kind of things, God says, if any of this happens, get them out of the camp now. Or I'm leaving. Get the unclean out of the camp. Or I'm leaving. Verse 11. But it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water. And when the sun sets, he may come back into the camp. So what has he done? He has complied with God's commandments, his laws. And now we can come back into the camp. Verses 12 and 13. Again, we're talking about the army going out to battle. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. That means to go out to do your potty business. No porta potties in the camp. Go outside. You shall have an implement. It's a digging device among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, that is for your bowel movements, 
You shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. If somebody says, I don't want to go outside the camp, I'll just go over here behind my tent. What does God say? I'm not coming into that camp. That doesn't seem reasonable because two or three million people be about the size of Atlanta. If you live downtown and you got to go all the way to the outer border. This is when the army goes out to fight. They don't take three million people with them. So they're not talking about people. They're talking about the army. They're talking about the army when it's out for battle. we got to keep reading. Okay, Okay, yeah. Now, like I said, verse 9 starts this section. I was writing notes still. Ah. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. Verse 14. For, here's why all these rules are important. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you, and turn away from you. That word unclean is not actually the word unclean. The word actually is, if I can read my writing, ervant. It's Hebrew word 6172. It means nudity. So, no hanky-panky going on in camp. But none of these other types of uncleanness either, which is why they use the word unclean, because it encompasses it all. So God says, if the camp is not holy, if the camp is not righteous, I will not be there. And that means that the war will not go well. And that ends that section. And of course, we have examples. We could go to Judges and Joshua even, and look at examples where the people go out to war and start committing sins like a Khan, and what happens then to the battle? It suddenly goes poorly for Israel. And that's when they come to the Lord each time and go, Lord, who did it? And the Lord says, he did. Okay, carrying on. Verse 15 Verse 15 and 16 go together as a unit. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. He may dwell with you in your midst, in the place which he chooses, within one of your gates, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. So when the army is victorious and the nation they defeat had taken people into slavery, and the slaves escape to Israel. Do they treat them like they're enemy soldiers from the nation they just defeated? No. So don't send them back into, into that kind of a position, into that kind of a slavery. But it makes me think then about the book of Philemon. Does it you? Let's turn to Philemon. Philemon's an escaped slave that Paul sends home. Says back to his master. If you ask me what chapter, you're not familiar with Philemon. It's the page before Hebrews. 
Are we there? Paul's going to send Philemon back. Well, let's read. Paul, a prisoner of Messiah Yeshua and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. To the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Yeshua and toward all the saints. That the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Messiah Yeshua. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Messiah to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Yeshua the Messiah. I wish he hadn't called himself aged. But, okay. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Onesimus is the one who's the slave who's escaped. Philemon was his owner whom I have begotten while in my chains. In other words, Onesimus, as an escaped slave, has come to faith in Messiah. Philemon is a saved person in Messiah. So Onesimus is now the brother in Messiah to Philemon, who once was unprofitable to you, that is the escaped slave, but now is profitable to you and to me, that is, in helping to share the gospel. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he sends Onesimus back to Philemon saying, please, as a favor to me, don't put him back into slavery, but receive him back as your brother and Messiah. I thought that was pretty cool. So back to Deuteronomy. Verse 17. 17 and 18 go together. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. And do you have asterisk after both harlot and perverted? Yeah. The reason is that's not really what the Hebrew says. The first word, therefore, ritual harlot is Kadesha, and it literally means a harlot or a prostitute. So don't have loose women, either for pay or not for pay, amongst the children of Israel. That is, the women should be righteous and upstanding before the Lord, too. And the perverted one is the Hebrew word kadesh, Hebrew word 6945, which means a sodomite or a homosexual. 
whether a prostitute or not. Oh. Verse 18. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog that is a prostitute, male or female, heterosexual, homosexual. Do not bring any such wages to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering. He says that money was made in ways that are an abomination to God. Don't you bring the proceeds from it. it says for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. All sin is wrong, but when God calls a sin an abomination, what does that mean? Particularly bad. One that turns the stomach. Yeah. It's an exact opposite. Right. Yeah. But it's kind of like a play on words. Yeah. <sighs> Verse 19. On to a better topic. Maybe. I hope. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out of interest. To a foreigner, you may charge interest. But to your brother you shall not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Those verses have had an interesting history. Because from the early days of the church, the church understood that this applies to everybody that belongs to God, not just to the Jewish people. But they didn't want the Jewish people to belong to God. So the bankers all across Europe have been from the beginning Jewish because the church wouldn't permit Christians to be bankers because bankers charge interest. So they forced the Jews to do that task. And in response, the Jewish people got wealthy across Europe. That's why they keep getting kicked out of one nation to another if you read Jewish history. They would get too prosperous so the government would seize all their assets and kick them out and they'd start over in another country who would say, hey, you've got to be the bankers and they would get wealthy and the nation would confiscate their assets and kick them out and they go on to the next nation. So it's interesting how that has played into Jewish history, at least to me it is. Exodus 22. I wish they taught Jewish history in our high schools. If you ever study a textbook on how the laws across Europe kept the Jews subjugated and moving from place to place, it's really very interesting, but sad. Exodus 22, verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you. In fact, God encourages you to make loans. Says you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Well, people want to lend money if they get interest back. But God said, no, no. If you're loaning to a brother, no interest. Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25, verses 36 to 37. 
We'll start in 35, yep, for context. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food and a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God, which means because I said so. Psalm 15. Yet when they returned from Babylon, they, they were doing some very bad things to some of their fellow Jews. So you're telling me that people have sinned on occasion throughout history? We're shocked. <laughs> Psalm 15, verse 5. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. What does this mean? He who does not put out his money at usury. Look back at verse 1. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill. Who is going to come into the Messianic kingdom? Who is going to dwell with the Lord through eternity? One of the criteria is he who does not put out his money at usury. In other words, non-bankers. In other words, in other words, it's not worth collecting the interest, right? Not when God feels this way about it. Proverbs 28. The Lord talks a lot about it. He was very serious about it. Proverbs 28.8. Proverbs 28 is describing who is the wicked man. Verse 8 says, One who increases his possessions by usury and extortion gathers it for him who will pity the poor. And this is in the section of verses 7 and 9. Look at verse 7. Whoever keeps, that's the word. No, it's not. Not seer. Not seer. It's Hebrew word 5341. It's a different word. Whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of glutton shames his father. Verse 9, one who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah, even his prayer is an abomination. So between the one who keeps the law and the one who turns away his ear from the law, God includes collecting interest on debts to your brother. Ezekiel chapter 18 Yeah, different flavor. That's all. Ezekiel 18, verse 8. Verse 8 is explaining verse 5. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, verse 8 says, if he has not exacted usury, 
nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed two judgment between man and man. Getting the idea that God doesn't like people to collect interest from their brothers. That was Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 8. I'm sorry, did I go too quickly? Shame on me. 18, 8. And it's explaining verse 5. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, he does not exact usury, which is interest. In the same chapter of Ezekiel 18, there's also verse 13. If he has exacted usury or taken an increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. Doesn't it thing like, seem like this would be such a minor thing? That I've lent money at interest to my brother? It's not little in God's eyes. The same chapter. Verse 30 something. Oh wow. It's actually verse 17. I know why I want to look at verse 30 something now, but verse 17 um, is the if howevers who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgments and walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. And look at verses 30 to 32 of Ezekiel chapter 18. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. And it notices not the Lord God, it should be my Lord, the Lord. Repent. What is that Hebrew word, Daniel? Shuvu. That's not a suggestion, that's a commandment. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Couldn't God have said, turn from some of your sin, and you'll be okay? But he didn't, did he? Turn from all. Verse 31, cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That's circumcision of the heart. And then he says, what? For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Actually, again, it's my Lord, the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. One last reference, Ezekiel 23. Or is that 22. I'm betting it's 22. We'll find out when we get there. 22.12 is what I think I wrote down. Yeah. In this chapter, God's told Ezekiel to show them their transgressions, to show them why they're falling under judgment, why I am so angry. Verse 12 says, In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You've made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. After that, how many of you want to loan money at interest to your brothers? 
No. Let's go back to Deuteronomy then. What's that? What was that last verse you just read in verse 12? Ezekiel 22, verse 12. Thank you. Yep. So actually we should return all the interest we've ever earned in our life from bonds, savings, <laughs> investments. We should return all that. I did not say that. <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> but yeah, he said your people. He didn't say relatives. He said your brethren. Originally it did, yes. It's been applied by people farther than that. But that was God's intent. Because God gave them the land, God gave them the food, God gave them the increase. So when they share it with their brother, they're just sharing the blessing from God. It also prevented um, inflation. I read just recently that for literally centuries, the value of money, the value of grain, that was the same. Yeah, a but, shekel was a shekel. And then all of a sudden, yeah, know, I used to buy an ice cream cone for a nickel. Yeah, we've heard of penny candy. Now it's three dollars for a candy bar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> Start in verse twenty-one. Twenty-one to twenty-three is a unit. When you make a vow to the Lord, vows are voluntary. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. I mean, you don't have to make a vow to the Lord. But if you do, you must keep it. Verse 23, that which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. What immediately jumps to mind? Who? Jephthah. Let's go back to Judges. Judges. Joshua then Judges. Chapter 11. Jephthah was a Gileadite. Is he a member of the children of Israel or not? Yes. Gilead was where the children of Israel settled on the east side of the Jordan River. Is there no bomb in Gilead? In fact, there was a prophet from Gilead by the name of Elijah. Yep. So we'll start in verse 29. Judges eleven twenty-nine. It gives us a lot of the bad things about Jephthah earlier in the chapter. But in verse 21, Judges 11, verse 21. Oh, no, I said 29, didn't I? So 29, you're right. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. So he's had a change of heart. He's not the rogue he was before. He's gotten himself right with the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. Was this something he had to do? No, vows are voluntary, but he made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, 
then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. He defeated them from Aror as far as Meneth, twenty cities, and to abel Karamim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. When Jephthah came home to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. That's not what he intended, right? He intended to sacrifice a lamb. But it's not a lamb. It's his daughter. And she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Can you sacrifice a child to the Lord our God? No, you cannot. So what happens? We must read on. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. A father tears the clothes at the death of a child. And he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, for you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go, and he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vow with her which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. So what happened is she goes and serves at the tabernacle for the rest of her life. She cannot marry. She cannot have children. So to Jephthah, it's as if she's died because she dies with no offspring and his line terminates there. Lesson, be careful what you vow. What does Hebrews chapter 11 tell us about Jephthah? Did you know he's mentioned? You know that he would have had a strong desire of his heart to say, God, I'm not keeping this vow. Sorry about that. We'll just have to work it out later. You can't have my daughter. But in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 says, so, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to, fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And it goes on and on. So Jephthah is remembered because he kept his vow, even though it meant that his daughter could never marry, could never have children, and that meant that his legacy would die right there. He would never have any descendants. So be careful what you vow. Back to Deuteronomy. 
Verses 24 and 25 go together as a unit. When you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. Verse 25, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. What comes to mind here? What did Messiah's disciples do? Let's go to Matthew chapter 12. They plucked heads of grain. They didn't fill their pockets. They didn't harvest the grain. But they plucked handfuls. Did God say they could? We just read it. God said they could. But it offended the scribes and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 1. At that time, Yeshua went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Why is he going through the grain fields on the Sabbath? They're going to the synagogue. Yeah. Messiah taught most of his great sermons in the synagogue when he was in Capernaum. What's Capernaum known for? The grain fields, the wheat fields. Known for producing bread and also for fishing. So he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and the disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Does Deuteronomy chapter 23 say they can do that? It says they can do that. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Eating on the Sabbath is forbidden where? Nowhere. When God said in Deuteronomy, you can pick a handful of grain, did he say except on the Sabbath? No. But the Pharisees are looking at the fences, not at the commandment. And one of the fences says it's unlawful to harvest grain on the Sabbath. Another says it's unlawful to thresh grain on the Sabbath. And the scribes and Pharisees say when they pluck the hand of grain, well, that's threshing. No, threshing the grain is to bring in the harvest. They just picked a handful. And you rub it together in your hands to get the husk off. They said, that's threshing. Is that threshing? No. So look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath day. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests. So David broke God's commandment when he ate the showbread. Do the Pharisees condemn David? Absolutely not. Because he only broke God's commandment. But Messiah's disciples have violated their man-made rules. Ooh, that's bad. Violating God's commandment? No problem. Violate our rules? You're a bad boy. So what's Messiah trying to say here? Which is more important? Which should we worry about? God's commandments or man-made rules? God's commandments. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Do the priests in the temple work on the Sabbath? Yes. But isn't working on the Sabbath prohibited? It is unless... God tells you to do it. 
So who told the priests that they have to work on Shabbat? God did. So God said, that takes precedence over thee. Thou shalt not work on Shabbat. Who gets to determine which is more important? God does. So in verse 7 he says, picking a handful of grain and eating it, God said you can do that. So if God says you can, and your rabbinic rules say you can't, who's right? God is right. Wouldn't you know that they would put it specifically in the scripture that they could pick that hand of grain? <laughs> yeah. Make an issue out of it later. Yeah, so they could make an issue out of it later. What surprises God? Nothing. Nothing. One expression that we used to use a lot when I was in the military is it doesn't surprise me how often the government shoots itself in the foot. What's surprising is the rapidity with which they reload. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 24. Definitely true. <laughs> Deuteronomy 24 gets me in trouble every time. So let me pull up my waders and step in. Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her. If you take a wife, you should marry her. Absolutely. That word marry comes from the word Baal. The word Baal in Hebrew means husband. So the betrothed of God keeps worshiping Baal, which is Baal. So the betrothed wife of God keeps calling an idol husband. Just something to keep in mind. So the man takes the wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. All right. Again, that word marries in verse 1. The Hebrew is ba'alah. It comes from the word baal. And when it says it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her means, he finds that she is not the virgin she claimed to be. She has been involved in sexual immorality. That is the only grounds given in the scripture for divorcing your wife is for sexual immorality. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to jump in with both feet. Because a lot of people don't understand Matthew chapter 5. And not just the parts about the law not being abolished. 
But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It says, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let, her, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. If you look at the English, it looks like there's one word, divorce, throughout all those verses, right? It's not the same word. They've translated different Hebrew words as the same English word. So, in verse 31, it should read, Furthermore, it has been said, whoever puts away his wife, that is, abandons his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That word divorce is different from that first word divorce. So it should read, from whoever said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's called a get in Hebrew. That certificate of divorce allows her to remarry without being an adulteress. If you just put her away and don't give her the certificate of divorce, she cannot remarry without committing adultery because she's another man's wife. The fact that she's been abandoned does not change her status as his legal wife. So the same thing goes in verse 32. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife is not divorces his wife, it puts her away. There has been a tendency in history. Let me talk about my grandfather. He married my grandmother. When he got tired of her, he didn't divorce her. He just left and went and married another woman in another town. Got tired of her, didn't divorce her, just left her and married another woman in another town. He's marrying the women. He's not divorcing them. So he has put them away, but not given them the certificate of divorce. That violates the commandment back in Deuteronomy. So, so verse 32, But I say to you, whoever puts away his wife for any reason except sexual immorality, that's the only reason that's permissible, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is not divorced but put away commits adultery. So if you do not give your wife the certificate of divorce called a get, then you leave her in a position where she is not free to remarry. And what does a woman do back in biblical days if her husband abandons her? How does she live? She's got a few choices. One is to become a beggar. Another is to become a prostitute. Another is to starve to death. And she can't just go down and become a greeter at Walmart. So to put away your wife, it says in Deuteronomy, give her a certificate of divorce so that she can marry another, so that she can find happiness, so that she can be supported, that she could live. So there are so many people that they, they get so um, angry when somebody who's divorced, a woman who's divorced, remarries. 
They say it violates what Messiah taught here, but it doesn't. There's a difference between put away and divorced. So in verse 31, both words are there. It has been said, whoever puts away his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. They're not the same word. Let's go to Luke 16. Part of the problem is language. Yeah. Because you go from Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek and then from there into English. And by that time, whoever's wanting to make up the doctrine interprets and translates it the way he wants to. Right. It's called eisegesis. It's yes. in putting your doctrine onto the translation of the text instead of adapting your theology to the, what the text actually says. Right. So Luke 16, 18. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. We have the same issues with one who puts away his wife and marries another is wrong. And whoever marries one who's been put away but not divorced is wrong. But the reason for the certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy is so that the woman can remarry and not be Accused of adultery. Um, yes, ma'am. To divorce a wife, using divorce correctly, means that the man gave her this certificate of divorce. Which ends the marriage. She's no longer a married woman. Okay. Adultery is a man having sexual intercourse with a married woman. She's no longer married. She's now free to remarry. Um, and that was true throughout the uh, Old Testament, too. Yes. Because she came before the elders, and if they found her the innocent party, she was awarded the get, and she became innocent as if nothing had ever happened. She was free to remarry. Yeah. And we've got more to say on this. There's more to come. But first, we've got to look back at verse 1. There was a, a schism in Israel back at the time of Messiah. You know, there were two main schools of the Pharisees, the school of Shammai and the school of Hallel. And almost always Messiah agrees with the school of Hallel and not the school of Shammai, except for this one issue. The school of Hallel said you can divorce your wife for any reason. You don't like the way she made your eggs this morning. She's out of here. And the school of Shammai said no. Only for sexual immorality. That's the only grounds. And there Messiah sides with Shammai. As we saw in the scriptures. It says here some uncleanness. That uncleanness is sexual immorality. There is no other grounds in scripture. For divorcing our wives. Now. Let's look at Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. 
The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What are they asking? Which side do you agree Which with? Which do you agree with, Halal or Shammai? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, can you divorce your wife for just any reason? No. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? The commandment is what? To give her a certificate of divorce so that she can remarry. He said to them, because, Moses, because of the hardest of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries who is divorced commits adultery. So if she has been sexually immoral and you put her away, that's the only acceptable reason to God. Let's go back to Leviticus 21. Because there are still those who say a divorced woman cannot remarry no matter what. No matter what. And when I allowed a divorced woman to remarry in this congregation, we lost people. Who said the Bible says a divorced woman cannot remarry, period. So let's look and see what does the scripture say. Look at Leviticus chapter 21. Verse 7. This refers to the priests, and it's only the priests that this is talking about. They shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. So can a priest marry a divorced woman? No. Look at verse 14. Again, we're talking about the high priest. A widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or harlot, these he shall not marry. But he shall take a virgin of his own people as wife. So there's two commandments from God. The priesthood cannot marry a divorced woman. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 24, verse 4. Then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. So there are three commandments there about who cannot marry a divorced woman. If the commandment is no one can marry a divorced woman, then why do we have three separate commandments of who can't? Is God just wasting his breath? No. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 50. So the high priest or any priest Correct. Correct. A Levite who's not a priest? Sure. But if we're a nation of kings and priests, does that throw us into that category? No, because he's talking specifically about a descendant of Aaron. Aaron. Mm -hmm. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. We're not given the marriage. 
Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1. I have people frequently say, God can't take Israel back because God put away Israel. Chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I put away? In other words, what? Did God divorce Israel? God did not divorce Israel. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Since the Lord did not divorce Israel, the Lord can take Israel back. The prohibition is once you divorce your wife and she becomes the wife of another, you cannot take her back. Lord says, if you're saying, I can't take Israel back, where's the certificate? Where is it? And the answer to that is nowhere. Is divorce a good thing? No. Is it correct to say that a woman who is divorced can never marry again? The answer to that is no. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. I know I'm going to get emails, but that's okay. Verse 5. Yes, sir. So, I'm, I mean, I'm not. Don't divorce your wife. No. I'm just, I just have a question about what we just read in Isaiah. Of course. Um, Jeremiah 3. Jeremiah 3. Talks about, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, talking about backsliding to Israel. So, is this just like, how would you explain that? Israel is not Judah. So, it's talking, so it says. Talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. They went into captivity in 722. Have they come back? No, they have not. So that's talking specifically just about Israel, not Jews. Right. But then there's a remnant of believers who come out of that. So how do you... I'll let God work on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when they say God cannot accept Israel back. Israel's been cast away. She's done away. Always, I just turn to the book of Romans. For Paul says, has God cast away his people and before knew? Absolutely not. He says all Israel shall be saved. Yeah, but that's not all Israel that ever existed. No, but he's, but he's not excluding Israel. It, it may not be every person who ever lived, but if you say all Israel shall be saved, obviously... Israel is not excluded. Yeah. Good point. I understand it now. Verse 6. Oh, we didn't do verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So it's not just for a year he doesn't have to go out to war. God says he shall not go out to war. Angelic music. Angelic music, of course. Verse 6. Wait a minute, it says he should not be charged with any business. Does that mean he's not supposed to work? That means they can't make him go out and work. Can't make him do something. Yeah. 
Um, back in those days, most everybody was a farmer, but not everybody. So if he was a blacksmith, could you make him do blacksmith work for a year? You couldn't. It's probably like being conscripted, like the government doesn't just have soldiers. They've got all, they've got accountants, they've got attorneys. That, so he yeah. could not be conscripted. I think that's, that's a better way to put it. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. He still had to earn his living. Yeah, but he's able to do it at home. Right. The kings didn't let you work from home. They made you come up to their place <laughs> and work. Okay. Forever? I, mean, I, I think I heard something incorrect. You said this is not just for that first year that he has a new one? It is just for the first year that he has a new one. Yeah. Oh, after the end of the year, the king can take him wherever he wants and make him do whatever he wants. That's one thing God warned when he said, we want a king. He said, I'll give you one, but you won't like it. Guess what? You're going to be subject He's to going to conscript your kids, put them in the army, put them in his accountancy, and he do all that kind of stuff. That you are subject. Yep. Verse 5 kind of goes with verse 6. No man shall take the lower or the upper millstone and pledge, for he takes one's living. And pledge means, I'm going to loan you money. And until you pay it back, I'm going to hold this property. Well, if you take the upper or lower millstone, then the man can't grind, right? You can't grind with one stone. Well, I'm sure you could sit there with a little mallet and pound the grains individually, but you're taking a man's ability to make a living. And that's what it's all about. It's, that's not showing charity to your brother. If you keep him from making a living, that would allow him to pay back the loan. And then verse 7. It seems like it's out of place, but these are just groupings of types of commandments within chapters. Originally, Deuteronomy didn't have chapters. So what if a man, it says, if a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die. He shall put away the evil from among you. Do people really steal other children? Ever go to Walmart and look at the big wall of all the missing children? Go to Exodus chapter 21 verse 16. Exodus 21, verse 16. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. So kidnapping is not just of a child, but of any of your brethren, young or old, and we call that trafficking today, yep. And sells him. Or if he's found in his hand, that is, you've kidnapped somebody to, to chain them in your basement to work the spinning wheel, spinning wheat into gold. First Timothy chapter one. Wayne, yes, um. But they should have been. 
they deserved it. They deserved it. But they were forgiven. <laughs> First Timothy chapter one. Yeah. We can come up with many examples of where commandments have been broken. That's not hard to do. First Timothy one ten. What does God say in the New Testament about kidnappers? Look at verse 10, but we'll start at 8 so we know what it is. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So is kidnapping approved in the New Testament? No, it is not. Never has been, never will be. And we are out of time. We'll have to pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 8.